Welcome to the DTB podcast for October 2014, volume 52, number 10. My name is David Fizakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave, I'm editor-in-chief. This month's editorial is entitled Taking the Hype Out of Hypertension. So James, what's the hype we're referring to? Uh, This is a process called renal sympathetic denervation, which came onto the scene uh, a little while ago and the initial studies were very promising. Big drops in patients who had this operation. 20, 30 millimetre of mercury drops in people who'd previously been resistant to normal treatment. So lots of hype about this new treatment modality which people hoped would perhaps even almost sort of cure hypertension. And unfortunately, a study, the first study where they actually did sham denervations in people, so they had, if you like, a placebo group, really showed absolutely no difference between the two groups. And so as a result of this, uh, despondency amongst professionals? Yes, I think, I think, as I say, largely because, of course, as far as therapeutics are concerned, there has been very little movement in the management of hypertension. So... I think it's been about 20 years now since angiotensin receptor blockers came onto the market. I think they were the last real new treatment option that came, that, that has come. So there's been very little movement in the therapeutics uh, in management of hypertension. So that kind of suggests it's all a bit depressing. Is there anything that we should be doing? Well, I think I think you're right. I think at one hand you think, well, gosh, you know, here we are, nothing new. And yet I think we've actually forgotten that actually there's been quite a lot of change in the last few years. We've recognised the importance of overdiagnosis and the actual benefit of asking patients to do home readings. We've also really moved a huge way with regard to risk assessment of patients now, so we don't look in hypertension as a silo that we actually look at patients' overall cardiovascular risk. There's also new studies that have looked at the management of hypertension in the elderly and shown that that's actually usually very beneficial. So whilst I think we've got no new therapeutic agents, I think there's a lot of quite new therapeutics. So lots of good stuff we could be doing to maximise the existing benefits that we know about in terms of kind of multifaceted treatment but worrying less about the big blockbuster innovations that may or may not come about. Yes, like so much in medicine, if we just do what we can do well, I think there's still a lot to be done. Excellent. Thank you very much. And our first main article this month looks at the management of non-cognitive symptoms in people with dementia. We published an article in June which looked at the management of cognitive symptoms in patients with Alzheimer's disease. This time we've broadened it out to look at the non-cognitive symptoms in people with dementia. So what are the main issues we're focusing on? What are the key symptoms we're looking at in this article? Well, so this is this is behavioural problems such as aggression, difficult uh, behaviours that many patients with dementia exhibit. And of course, this has been an, a really, really difficult area for clinicians and carers. We're well aware that many patients with dementia develop difficult behaviours which can be very hard to manage. And over the last 10 years, we have seen have seen a shift. So there was an emphasis on using antipsychotic drugs, maybe quite liberally a few years ago. Then we had some concerns. Yes, yeah, so I think it was 2007, the first concerns were raised about the 
possible increase in cardiovascular deaths, particularly stroke in patients give, being given the new antipsychotic agents. And so I think in 2009 was when that big review was done and primary care were asked to really look at all their antipsychotic prescribing in these patients and try and reduce them. And in fairness, there's actually been a, a pretty good response to that request. So I think levels were around 17% of patients being prescribed these drugs and the number is now down to about 7% I think in 2013. So encouraging that there has been a change, hopefully not being substituted by other other drugs in their place. But from a clinician's point of view, where do you begin um, with the patient who's got behavioural problems or non-cognitive symptoms, what, what, what should they do first? Well, I think that's that's the great strength of this article is that we, we detail that, of course, therapeutics is your last uh, port of call. Uh, and really the first line is to actually look at things like well, there's any ongoing medical problems, look at the drugs the patient's already on and make sure there aren't particular drugs such as anticholinergics or uh, certain analgesics such as tramadol, make sure these aren't actually causing the behavioural problems. Then there's obviously all the issues around uh, ongoing illnesses, particularly occult infections. So we, we go through all this uh, this sort of very sim- simple approach that clinicians can do first before, perhaps if all else fails, thinking about the use of an antipsychotic. And we do visit some of the non-drug interventions as well, which evidence-based, not huge, but again, things that people can consider. And a lot of it seems to be about improving the systems of care so training care staff in recognizing and managing the symptoms providing some things like reminiscence therapy for for patients and even the good old aromatherapy where are we with that one these days yes well that's quite interesting there there has been a systematic review on aromatherapy and the results were equivocal so um having thought perhaps uh, there'll be no evidence for this one way or other there there is evidence and um so at the moment it's neither helpful nor unhelpful. But you're right, I think the thing that struck me most and perhaps my own personal learning point from all this was the importance of the carer here. Often it's how with help and support and advice to the carer you can actually change the environment the patient is in and improve their behaviour. And drug interventions, bottom of the list. Absolutely, they still have this real worry hanging over them about increased risk of uh, stroke and cardiovascular uh, events, so we really should be using them just very short term, reviewing them very quickly after starting them, stopping them at six weeks, uh, and seeing if the the problem has gone away, which often it might well have done. Uh, and we really shouldn't be using these drugs in the long term unless there's ongoing significant behavioural problems, which might lead to self harm or harm of others. But if you get to that point having good systems in place to make sure that the drug is regularly reviewed. If anything in the patient's characteristics or other conditions changes, be prepared to review and stop. Well, even you know, if you decide long-term, it's still a case, absolutely, of reviewing and reviewing and continually looking and making sure it is the right thing for the patient. And one last question. Any of these drugs actually licensed for use in this country? Well, that's an interesting point. Risperidone is licensed uh, in patients with Alzheimer's disease for the management of of behavioural problems in patients with moderate to severe dementia, but it's not licensed in the management of multi-infarct dementia, and there are no other drugs licensed uh, for that either. So again, something for prescribers to be aware of um, in terms of a following GMC guidance on drugs to prescribe, 
but also just being aware and informing patients and carers of the nature of the treatment that they may be prescribing. Exactly, and and it is good practice that uh, you do discuss these drugs with the patient if that's appropriate. Right, thank you very much. And our second article is uh, looking at a topical treatment for molluscum contagiosum. Let's start off with what is molluscum contagiosum? So I think I think you know anyone who's had children will know these little pox virus, little blebs on the skin classically have an umbilicus so they're small two or three millimeter lumps on the skin and current advice standard treatment well the current advice is simply to leave well alone they really are best simply ignored they will go away might take as long as two years might be lucky might be in eight weeks median time to disappear is around i think six to eight months that sort of time but they don't scar if they're left alone, and that's the best thing you can do. But appeared on the market relatively recently is a product containing potassium hydroxide. What's interesting about this one? Yeah, well, this, this is very interesting. Uh, obviously, we've used potassium hydroxide. It's, it's a caustic agent, and it's been used to treat warts and, and other conditions in the past. The interesting thing about this is they've licensed it as a device, not as a therapeutic agent. So as a consequence of that, the evidence for its effectiveness is not perhaps quite so robust as it needs to be if it was actually a therapeutic treatment. So it's not been assessed by the European Medicines Agency or the Medicines Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency as a licensed medicine. So all those dossiers which analyse uh, efficacy, harms, etc. are not available for this particular... Precisely, product. precisely. And they have done some small studies with it but nothing on the on the sort of level that you'd expect for most other therapeutic agents so something for clinicians to be aware of that it's not a licensed medication it's a medical de- medical device and overall the evidence well it's pretty um what's the one i'm looking for limited limited is the word i'm looking for it's pretty limited very small studies in in the sort of dozens of, of children and, and no real no difference between that and and saline and is it prescribable well this is <laughs> this is the issue perhaps for a lot of GPs who are now quivering in their boots because this costs uh, the NHS £13.50. It costs the parent, if they go to the pharmacy, about £24-odd. Pounds. So a lot of them might say, well, I'll go to my GP and get this on prescription. But at £13 a go for two mils of potassium hydroxide, uh, it is uh, seemingly very expensive. And with very little evidence behind it, I think this is one that I would be firmly trying not to prescribe but technically it's not it is available technically it is available on fp10 okay well, that's a challenge for prescribers to think about uh, and finally a quick look at a couple of items from select this month the first one we highlighted a few months ago that there was an ongoing review of emergency contraceptives in women who are overweight and there was concern that there was some evidence to suggest that they may be less effective in this group of people what's the latest well yes well the latest is the ema have looked at this and they decided no there's no problem at all with weight regardless of your weight the morning after pill as i used to call it or the emergency contraception is equally effective of course like with all these contraceptive techniques the sooner you take it after unprotected sex the better and that obviously still holds true but the weight issue as far as the EMA are concerned is not one to worry about. So not enough evidence to change current advice although there was I think one product licensed in Ireland 
and possibly France, which did make reference to the weight issue. Overall, they're saying no need to change practice, carry on as you are, and the drug is still used at the same dose in all all. That's women. right, that's right, as, as counterintuitive as that might be. Okay, and the second interesting topic, uh, just to flag up, was the change in legislation to allow schools to purchase salbutamol inhalers. Yes, this this is a little sort of quirk, isn't it? This is um, a new policy that the government has introduced that allows head teachers to go to a pharmacy with a basically right out of form requesting salbutamol inhalers to be ordered, and uh, they are then able to keep these for emergency use uh, in the school. Uh, and the idea behind this is that time and time again. Uh, school children come to school and either have lost their inhaler or it's empty or it's broken or for whatever reason they then have an asthma attack and it's uh, a simple policy the government hopes will prevent things deteriorating whilst the child is at school. But probably behind it all is some work for the school in terms of getting a policy in place, making sure that teachers, parents, pupils, everybody knows about it and actually some logistical arrangements about where these things are going to be kept, how they're going to be accessed. I agree. I mean, I think, you know, it's easy enough one thing sort of ordering something and having it on a shelf somewhere, but but who do you decide should get this? And and what if they actually take a tabutaline inhaler normally? And, you you know... it only covers salbutamol? Only covers salbutamol. So there's all kinds of, you know, it's one thing saying, you know, please miss, my inhaler's broken, to actually then doing the deed of, you know, will they swap like for... I don't know. It, I think it is one area where schools may do this and then actually find that it's a really difficult area and the best thing they can do is make sure the child actually comes to school properly kitted up with their inhalers. I suspect if you're a parent governor and you're a pharmacist or a GP or a nurse, you might find this heading your way in terms of advising the school. Indeed. And, of course, it is fascinating because I'm not sure there's any other prescription-only medicine which can be ordered by a head teacher or any any teacher. It's quite an interesting development. One for the Christmas quiz. Okay, thank you very much. To read these and any of our articles, please go to dtb.bmj.com. And if you have any feedback, we always welcome emails to dtbeditor at bmj.com.